This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Women's University is focused on making Texas healthier, offering more than 80 health-related degree programs from nursing and physical therapy to kinesiology and nutrition science. Find out more at TWU.edu health. And Raise Your Hand Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit RaiseYourHandTexas.org slash podcast. When you join us for the Texas Tribune Festival from September 20th to the 25th, virtually from your living room, or from September 24th and 25th in person in downtown Austin, you will hear from changemakers who are driving innovation. Hear from Michael Dell, founder, chairman, and CEO of Dell Technologies, Christina Sinsun Ramirez, the executive director of NextGen America, and former U.S. Representative Will Hurd, our Helodes. Buy tickets for TribFest now at festival.texastribune.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for August 4th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics at the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello. Hello. Politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Hello. Hello, thank you all for joining. So it is August 4th, which means we are just days away from the 2021 special session of the Texas legislature, wrapping up the the session that wasn't basically. Uh, It was expected to be dramatic fights over voting bills, critical race theory and funding for the, the state legislature itself, but has kind of devolved into tedium. We've had Democrats outside the state for nearly 23 days, blocking action on the voting bill and other legislation. Uh, meanwhile, Republicans have just kind of been hanging out around the Capitol, uh, yelling at the Longhorns for leaving the Big 12 uh, and you know, announcing the color of various papers in the Texas House. Um, but it seems like the action could pick up again soon with the, the session wrapping up on Friday. That leaves some big decisions for the Democrats about whether to come back, for Abbott about if and when to call the next special session and and things like that. Cassie and Patrick, you guys had a story kind of laying out some of the decisions they have. Cassie, I'll go to you first. Can you just kind of set this up for us, kind of what we're expecting, what we need to be looking out for over the next few days? Yeah, I think pretty much everything's on the table at this point. Um, a number of unknowns. Uh, Svitek and I had a story on our uh, on our site that ran today, that just saying that you know uncertainty is running rampant among both Republicans and Democrats at the Capitol. Um, my, I might be getting the technicality of this wrong, but I think today marks the first day that both the House and Senate uh, could have adjourned sine die. Uh, without necessarily needing to give notice or, or uh, permission, rather, um, you know, the House uh, is standing at ease for the day, so didn't happen there. Uh, not sure about the Senate; haven't been tuned in there. Um, you know, so so something could happen on that tomorrow. Something could happen on that Friday, as you noted, this is the last day to do so. Um, but you know, all of this is kind of being presented with no uh, update from uh, the governor or his office on whether he plans to order a second special session immediately after or the day after. Um, so the just the general timing that we're working with here, I think, is. Uh, 
you know, we have somewhat of a sense of, of what's going to happen, but no real specifics yet. Um, another question is, you know, for the second special session, are we going to be working with the same items that were on his first special session agenda? Will there be more added to that call? Uh, and then, you know, just in terms of Democrats, at least those who are in D.C. and have been for the past few weeks, you know, are they going to come back to Texas and return immediately to the Capitol? Are they going to stay hungered down in their districts? You know, there's a chance that they stay in D.C. to see what happens with the voting right debate up there, voting rights legislation debate up there. Uh, you know, and then I guess it's also possible uh, that they, you know, continue to break quorum in some capacity and go to another state. So all of this is just kind of out there for the time being. Um, I personally am hoping that we start to get some answers here over the next couple of days, as I'm sure everyone else is. But, you know, as my uh, as my line has been from the beginning, I am excited. You're excited. Well, yeah, the, the, the it, it seems like we had a bit of a lull here, but it, it's it's time to pick things up. I want to kind of just break this down by the various decisions that need to be made. I think, of course, the decision that, you know, is already made for everyone is that the special session ends on Friday. It can't go past that. It's 30 days. And if Abbott wants them back in the Capitol, he has to call another session. And Patrick, uh, Abbott has said that he will do so. He said that, I, I think, pretty much immediately after the Democrats left, right? He'll keep calling them back until they get the things that he wants done, done. The question is, when does he call it back? Does he call them back, you know, uh, one minute after they, after they can, you know, wrap things up for this, you know, sort of special session that wasn't? Or does he give the Democrats some time to come back to the state? You know, what, what's the kind of game theory that's that he's got to kind of work out here in, in terms of, of what his next move is? Yeah, as I think we all agree, there's no doubt there's going to be a second special session. The question is just how soon after this first one is, is Abbott going to call it? He gave an, a TV interview at the beginning of this current special session where he said that he would call it immediately the day after this current special session ends, he would call the second special to begin. Um, if this current special session goes all 30 days, that would bring us to Friday. So that would mean a second special under that promise by Abbott would begin Saturday. Um, he's His office has since uh, more recently um, has confirmed, yes, there will be a second special session, but hasn't confirmed uh, the start date. Um, so there's some thinking that this may not be the day after the current special session ends. Um, but all lawmakers are anticipating that the second special is going to begin pretty quickly, um, if not Saturday, uh, as soon as uh, the next week. And they're anticipating being back in Austin for that. Um, you know, for Abbott, as, as you pointed out, you know, maybe one consideration is does he want to give Democrats time to get back to DC. Um, I would assume all sides in that consideration are pretty skeptical that that would be something that would realistically happen, that Democrats would return that quickly to DC. Um, and, you know, Abbott may just want, you know, he's been repeating that I'm going to call special session after special session until we get these these items done, including the elections bill. Uh, and Abbott may just want to uh, fall through on that and, and schedule this as soon as possible, even, you know, regardless of the chance that there could be time for Democrats to come back to uh, Austin. Um, so certainly a couple of scenarios that we could play out here. Um, but it really is just a question of how soon after this current one ends is the next one going to begin. Yeah, it seems to me that if you were to wait, even if it were a couple of days, the reason to wait would be to kind of give Democrats an excuse to come back, basically. Does it does it feel easier for them to book a flight back to Texas if there's not 
already another session going on and then and maybe they come back then you call it and then they have to decide whether they want to leave the state again as opposed to having to decide whether they want to leave washington dc you know to come back to a session that's already in place cassie what are we hearing from the democrats i mean what's have they given any indication as to what what their next move is uh no they have not uh publicly you know, or really privately, I think, arrived at any sort of consensus in terms of their next steps. You know, in media availabilities, news conferences that House Democrats have been holding, uh, you know, they've been emphasizing that whatever their next move uh, ends up being, that they want to do it together as a unit, uh, kind of emphasizing the fact that they were pretty much able to retain their numbers uh, up in D.C. over the past few weeks. Um, You know, they've also said that there needs to be a decision made here within the next day or two, just from a purely, you know, timing standpoint, again, depending on when that second special is called. Uh, You know, I think a concern among, uh, you know, a number of of caucus members is, you know, kind of like the logistical hurdles that come with committing to a potentially weeks-long quorum break, right? You have commitments back home for, you know, a lot of members have full-time jobs outside of serving uh, in elected office. You know, they have families, commitments like that. Uh, is a second quorum break feasible um, is, I think, a question for a lot of, uh, you know, of the caucus members and, you know, don't really know where that takes them next. But uh, I think that we should have something, uh, we should have some sort of indication in terms of the caucus's next steps, I would say, you know, today, tomorrow, maybe Friday. Yeah, I think it's just pretty funny, too. I think both House Democrats and Abbott um don't want to publicly necessarily publicly admit that they're waiting on the other for their next move because they don't want to seem beholden to the other. But I think privately or quietly, they would say that they're kind of keeping an eye out to see what the other person does before, um, you know, they're kind of in this staring contest, kind of waiting to see what the other party does before they make their move. Um, but of course, it would pain, I think, both of them, uh, both of those sides politically to say uh, publicly that they're waiting to see what the other one does. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I've I've wondered whether there's any kind of like back channel communications going. It, it seems unlikely, maybe given that uh, the current relationship between the two groups. But I, I think there is a understanding that it's the Democrats just can't leave the state forever, right? They have jobs, they have families, they have limited funds. Although you know they have been able to fundraise pretty well off this, but. I think the big question is what's the exit strategy, right? Because it it would seem pretty anticlimactic and maybe fairly demoralizing to just kind of drive back to the Capitol. So I think there's a question of, do they return to their home districts? Do they make DPS kind of round them up and bring them back in from Texas, which would be kind of an interesting kind of political optics situation, which I think would probably fire up the bases of both parties and and frankly, be quite a news event for us, I would say. And and so, like, I think I, I'm sure those are the conversations that are going on is, is what's everyone's exit strategy. And I'm sure Abbott probably also has to be wondering about what his primary challengers are thinking and what kind of heat he could take if he if he's, you know, being perceived as giving the Democrats time or, or, or anything like that. So. Um, it should be pretty interesting to watch how that all plays and out. I, just one more point, too, <laughs> that I think has been striking at the end here is how much Democrats in D.C. have put their eggs in the basket of moving the needle on federal voting rights legislation versus um, any potential 
further negotiation on the elections bill back in Austin. I know that they believe that the entire process has been poisoned um, from the start with the elections bill in Austin, um, but they have been more emphatic as this corn break has gone along and basically saying like, we're not here in DC to negotiate over that bill in Austin. We're exclusively here to kill it in the special session and to influence federal voting rights legislation. Some political observers um, could make the case that they have a better chance of getting more compromise on the elections bill back in Austin than they do on actually moving the needle on this federal voting rights push in Washington, which continues to be, I know that they've pointed to a, a, a few little events here and there that give them hope, but which continues to be a, a pretty long shot if you look at the situation um, and the immovable political pieces in the US Senate. And so I think it's been striking at the end to see them really go all in on trying to change things federally and almost, you know, and, and basically saying in their words, they've given up on negotiating um, at, on the state level. Again, I know that they they believe that Republicans have poisoned us from the process and are not being good faith negotiating partners. Um, but I think it's interesting to see how they've gone all in at this point um, on ch- trying to change things federally. Yeah, I mean, I'll be I'll be one of those political observers. I think if they're up in D.C. waiting for Congress to do something, they're going to be up there for a pretty long time. It, it doesn't seem like the needle has moved much in that direction. Meanwhile, in Austin, there have been what I guess you could cast as little victories related to the voting bill that we saw early in the special session related to things like the souls to the polls voting, you know, Sunday restrictions. Um, the thing about uh Tell me if I'm saying this wrong, but about the provision in there about how you could kind of overturn an election if if fraud, you know, was alleged in a certain certain areas and things like that. So I, to be clear, I don't think the removal of those two provisions that you just cited were due to any real negotiation. Yeah, sure. Republicans yeah. realizing they messed up, or at least you know, claiming that they messed up. Um, but clearly, this is a, a, a malleable bill from that perspective. And again, I know that they they believe that the process is poisoned from the beginning and they don't have necessarily good faith negotiating partners. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the track record here bears out that this bill, you know, can be malleable um, with the at least with the right kind of public attention and scrutiny on it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. One question. Sorry. I I was just going to say, like, this continues to be like the question of the day for me day after day is, you know, both sides claim, you know, negotiations kind of blew up, bad faith, whatnot. What can actually be done, particularly on the House side between now and whenever the second special is called and, you know, lawmakers are inevitably going to have to readdress the elections bill in some capacity? Like what happens between now and then to address those strained relationships. And I don't, I haven't yet heard, uh, you know, uh, like a, you know, a straightforward answer on how to really go about fixing that, uh, or how to at least like ease some of those tensions. So I think that that'll be really interesting, uh, to see how that ends up playing out and what concessions are made among both Republicans and Democrats, especially on the elections bill. And of course, whatever else is on the uh, second special session agenda. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. And 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 do the Democrats come back to a House? You know, I think they left the the regular session feeling as though this were one of the more conservative sessions of the House in in, in a long time and that that they didn't have a lot of say and a lot of movement. But there's still, you know, somewhat of a tradition of bipartisanship in that chamber and, and Democrats leading committees and things like that. And I do wonder whether they're going to come back to an atmosphere where Republicans are even less interested in kind of working with them and cooperating with them after this kind of this blew up over the last 30 days. Um, it will be interesting to watch. Of course, 
it seems as though not all of the Democrats will be returning from Washington, D.C., that maybe some might have a longer flight back to Texas. Patrick, uh, where in the world are Jessica Gonzalez and Julie Johnson? Yeah, so Cassie and I reported this morning that the the House Democratic Caucus, um, at least as of Tuesday, couldn't account for those two members who had broken corn and gone to D.C. with them. Um, And then there was a report by Jonathan uh, Tylove, who's currently writing for Texas Monthly in D.C., um, that they were actually vacationing in Portugal um, for a trip that they planned a long time ago. Uh, He said they had non-refundable tickets. Uh, As we pointed out in our story, this doesn't change the fact um, that there is a lack of quorum, that you know that that their quorum has collapsed, and their lack of their quorum break has been unsuccessful or failed in any way. Um, but optically, it obviously is not a good look if you go to D.C. and you swear every day at your press conferences that you are in D.C. physically in D.C. Uh, to lobby lawmakers um, for this federal voting rights legislation, and then two of your people, um, you know, believe it's not, you know, clearly believe it's not important enough to be there that they could, you know, go and go on a vacation. Um, so it doesn't look good for them, obviously, from a, an optics perspective, um, in terms of disrupting the, you know, procedural bet that they've made here in breaking quorum, um, it doesn't change anything. Um, but they have really, I think, put, you know, in addition to the just bad optics, the House Democratic Caucus has really put a lot of stock in presenting a unified front. Um, and they were, you know, pretty successful. Uh, you know, you looked at Philip Cortez, who went back to Austin, they were able to persuade him within days to get back to DC and join them. Um, and so, again, it's not like these two lawmakers are, you know, um, you know, any less committed to the cause that they say brought them to DC. But in terms of having a unified front there in DC, this is not not ideal for them. Yeah, I also have a few questions about the explanation. Somebody mentioned this on Twitter about the non-refundable tickets, if that is indeed true. Who, what kind of, what lawmaker books non-refundable tickets in August after a, after a regular session? You know, that uh, seems like a rookie mistake. Those of us who have covered sessions know, know better than to plan too much for our summers when, when the possibility of a special session is there. I also was struck by uh, Gonzalez's comments to um, the Houston Chronicle um, when, when they reached out and asked where, whether she was in, uh, uh, in, in uh, Portugal, she answered, I don't respond to rumors. Uh, asked, you know, they, they then followed up for that, you know, saying there had been a report that she's in, in Portugal. She said, no one has shown proof these are rumors, period, end of story. It seems like uh, pretty easy to just say, if you're not in Portugal, to say, I'm not in Portugal. I think a pretty simple question of where are you, particularly in this time, uh, could be answered by the lawmaker. Um, you know, another just kind of interesting situation where, yeah, like you said, the optics are, are questionable. They, of course, caught a lot of heat um, for, for having their 12-pack uh, of beer on the bus on the way to the airplane. Um, I do just kind of wonder whether they'd be better off just being straightforward about this and, and saying, look, we went on vacation. Like we're not, we're, we're our, doing our job right now is to not be in Austin. And we're, we're, we've decided to not be in Austin and Portugal instead of Washington, D.C. Is that really, you know, such a, such a crime? Uh, of course, the Republicans are pretty gleefully uh, saying that it is. 
I mean, I'll chime in and just say the opt, like Patrick said, the optics are bad, but then d- like refusing to acknowledge it is, I mean, the cover up is always worse than the crime. Have we not learned exactly. this yet? Exactly. Just say you're there and then own it. Say I needed a vacation because I've been fighting for my constituents or whatever, you know, um, it's the same thing where they, they deleted the picture of the, the beer on the bus, you know, just own it. Say like, look, we wanted to, to drink a little beer. Like there's a lot of Texans who like beer. So so just go with it. Yeah, I think it's it's safe to say that that Gonzalez quote was kind of an instant classic in the uh, Texas political <laughs> communications fiasco hall of fame. <laughs> It'll be in the textbook, I think. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. The Andy Roddick Foundation. Do feelings sometimes sound like gibberish? Whatchamafeelit is a social and emotional learning curriculum helping kids turn jumbled emotions into sure-of-themselves sentences. Order now at whatchamafeelit.org. And Independent Colleges and Universities of Texas. Private Colleges, Public Purpose. Texas's independent colleges and universities are as diverse as the students and communities they serve. Learn more at icut.org. Okay, so while the Democrats have absconded to D.C. and other locations, Governor Greg Abbott continues to keep his focus on the U.S.-Mexico border down in Texas. Over the past week, he issued an order telling state troopers to pull drivers, pull over drivers suspected of transporting migrants who, quote, pose a risk of carrying COVID-19. He claimed in the order that the migrants crossing the border are helping to lead to the spread of COVID there which I think opened him up to a lot of questions about kind of what other measures he could or could not be taking to, to halt the spread of COVID, but also led to questions about whether that's, you know, basically encouraging or pushing for racial profiling and, and, and you know, having that kind of order. Um, this is in addition to just Abbott uh, requesting and having a very strong presence of the Department of Public Safety down along the border, you know, DPS troopers down there adding to the border security effort. Jolie, you were in Valverde County uh, late last month, kind of observing the DPS presence there. You you had a story, a, a very interesting, strong story, looking at the impact of that presence and some of the law enforcement actions that are being done. Can you give us a little summary of what you what you saw down there? Yeah, I mean, in essence, there are troopers everywhere. Um, there's just a lot of law enforcement in general going throughout the border region. Um, Valverde County is home to Del Rio, which has become, um, which is usually not a very large, like well-trafficked crossing spot for migrants, but has this year become a huge spot for crossing. Um, there's, because it's a small town and they're not like in the Valley, in the Rio Grande Valley, they have a lot of um resources set up for migrants crossing and seeking asylum. And they don't really have that in Del Rio in terms of like transportation to different places in terms of, uh, you know, like the, the respite centers, the places that are getting them just any type of shelter. Um, and so there has been a need according, like local officials are saying there is a need for help. Um, Greg Abbott has obviously in, pretty much entirely focused his efforts on the border recently. Um, and his his um, response was to send in hundreds of troopers who are there now in, in the Del Rio area who are looking for migrants crossing, not at the main and like the main points where people come to the gates of the fences and ask for asylum, but onto private property um, and arresting 
seemingly they're only supposed to be arresting unaccompanied men. Um, but we, I was there with our photographer, Miguel Gutierrez, and we saw, uh, we just happened to be on a ride along with the sheriff and saw a, an older couple from Venezuela who were separated. DPS was taking the man and arresting him for trespassing. Um, and the woman was there with border patrol and another family who was being processed, who's being getting ready to be processed by border patrol. Um, that was a mistake. They've said now, uh, the sheriff happened to be on site and was pretty upset and called, you know, the regional director for DPS, uh, DPS instantly called his trooper to be like, Nope, take that guy to border patrol. We're not supposed to be arresting him. Um, but it's, I've already heard from people who are representing these defendants. It's happened again um, of like a brother and sister being separated. So this is stuff that isn't, isn't supposed to be happening, but it's just really highlighting that there's this confusion on the border right now. There's border patrol, there is Texas national guard, there is troopers and these troopers are being cycled in on two week stints. So, you know, a trooper who kind of stopped me and our, and Miguel um, because we were, I, I don't he, we were looking at some clothes that had been discarded uh, by migrants and he was asking what we were doing there. Um, he had just showed up that day. He didn't really, I mean, <laughs> a lot of them are a little bit confused as to what the direct orders are at this point. So it's just a lot going on, but there's a new criminal justice system in Del Rio um, where generally you are, if you're a migrant, you uh, and cross onto private property and are unaccompanied as a man. Uh, you would, are seeking to be sought for arrest and you will go to a state prison that has now been converted into a jail that they have now more than a hundred migrants there at this prison turned jail. Um, and I'm sure there will be a lot more questions, a lot more, uh, I mean, I have a lot more questions. <laughs> I'm sure there will be a lot more to be found out about how this is working. Um, but, you know, at the very beginning, we already have had some missteps, so. Yeah, it's been interesting to see just kind of this, the legal strategy out here, basically uh, the state building fences for people on private land, uh, you know, your kind of cheap standard chain link fence with with what's in barbed wire on the top, right, Jolie? And, and the idea here is that with that fence, with a no trespassing sign, if a migrant, you know, the DPS doesn't, they're not border patrol, they don't enforce federal immigration laws, but trespassing is a state crime. And if you can arrest someone on a state crime, put them in jail or, or what is, you know, in, in this case in a prison, right. Then you can immediately then kind of alert uh, federal authorities that an undocumented person is in your custody and transfer that person over to the federal uh, federal authorities to then begin the proceedings to remove them from the um, from the county. You know, Jolie, one thing that I thought was interesting about your story and just hearing you talk about your trip down to Valverde County. Valverde County is an area that is represented. The sheriff down there is a Democrat, I believe. Um, not necessarily someone who is uh, interested in kind of buying in or playing into the, the, the Greg Abbott narrative of what's going down on the border. But who did have a lot of concerns about the kind of situation there and, and the sheer number of migrants who were crossing into his area at the time too, though, right? 
Yeah. And that's what he was saying. Like, this is, he, he is a, he is a Democrat, but he has been pretty vocal of like, we are having a crisis, whether you want to say it's a security crisis, I don't, he wouldn't say that, but it is like a humanitarian crisis is what I've heard some Democrats down there say, like they don't have the resources for these people who are crossing. It's not unusual to see hundreds of people show up at their gates every day. Whereas before that was not what you were seeing at all. Um, and so they, and now with, you know, there were concerns with the transportation order too, like they're still going to be processed and released by border patrol and then they can't go anywhere. Um, so there's just, there's a lot going on down there. There's a lot of people who are crossing um, and, you know, the solution from the state has been pretty much a, a lock them up approach. Um, I mean, the transportation order has now been temporarily blocked, uh, but you know, that's just temporary. It's still not final or anything. Yeah, the, and, and this transportation order, I think, got a lot of people concerned. Of course, uh, the federal government, the Biden administration sued, calling it unlawful. Um, there were a lot of concerns about racial profiling, you know, and also the the kind of rhetoric behind it, Abbott talking about uh, the pandemic and, and suggesting that the migrants down there are really making the situation, uh, the COVID pandemic situation worse along the border. You know, the numbers don't necessarily back that up. I'm looking at our map of, of the cases right now and, and statewide, you're looking at an average of around 3.8 uh, cases of the coronavirus per, um, well, I, I, I believe it's 1,000 people um, who, who, who have the, um, the, the um, pandemic and, or, or who have coronavirus, the numbers around the, um, um, yeah, 3.8 cases statewide per 1,000 people in Texas currently have tested positive in the last two weeks. But when you look at the border counties, that does not appear to be the in much worse shape than the rest of the state. You look at El Paso, the statewide average is lower. In Laredo, the statewide average is lower. And around RGV, you're talking about 3.7 for 3.5. So there does not seem to be a situation where the pandemic is necessarily worse due to, you know, migrants crossing over to the border. But this right now is kind of the main action that Greg Abbott is taking in order to spread, to stop the spread of the virus, which is causing people to A, you know, raise questions about whether this is, you know, an attempt to stoke fear about the, the migrants crossing over and B, you know, whether these are the right actions to be taken. That being said, Patrick, I think, you know, even though his order was, um, you know, temporary, temporarily halted by a federal judge, I think Abbott is, is probably pretty, pretty happy to get into a legal fight with the Biden administration right now over, over issues like this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime the Republican governor of Texas is an opportunity to clash with a Democratic presidential administration, it's a, a political um, advantage and obviously elevates his profile nationally and, and makes him look like he's fighting for the people of uh, people of Texas and especially on issues like border security, which is obviously at the top of the list for Republican primary voters and often near the top of the list for just voters in general in Texas. So we see it in our polling and, and other polling. So um, huge issue for him uh, right now. And I mean, Jolie has basically gotten at this, but I mean, I've been in, I've only been in Texas uh, seven years now, but um, more than ever, and it's not like, you know, and Rick Perry certainly did a lot on border security, but more than ever, it seems like the governor of Texas has created this just in, you know, entirely independent border security apparatus. Um, and, you know, I'm curious if the Biden administration 
does anything to take a more proactive approach to preempt it versus just a defensive approach, you know, suing over um, executive orders that have already been issued. Um, I'm, I'm curious if it forces their hand on any proactive policy changes. So far, it seems like um, they're trying to play defense against this, like I said, massive, you know, independent border security system that Abbott is creating. Um, I don't know. I don't really know the answer or the issue that well enough, but I'm curious if there's any proactive federal policy changes that it, it, it prompts, even if they're resistant to making those changes policy-wise, they may, they may bargain that it's better than, you know, um, letting Abbott continue on this in this direction, which is, is obviously pretty restrictive. Well, and I know like some the Democrat, like some of the Democrats I talked to in Valverde County, like the sheriff and the county attorney, who's the prosecutor, who's having to handle all these cases because they're misdemeanor criminal trespassing cases, um, have been, you know, this is a federal, like they're kind of saying this isn't a Trump problem. This isn't a Biden problem. This has gone back several administrations across, you know, the political spectrum. And it is like it, they're saying this is a federal issue. And if they're not doing that, like if they're going to let it be up to the state and a Republican controlled state where they're going to go on more of a law enforcement approach on this. I mean, then the federal, the federal authorities need to do something if that's not what they want. Um, It is interesting to see like the different legal fights that are going to come out of it. Like, cause so the transportation order is different than the, you know, arrest and jail order. Um, And both have like both are being, you know, one already immediately went to court and was blocked over concerns of racial profiling, things like that. Um, but the the jailing order also has concerns of just asylum rights. Um, you know, if someone's crossing and if they say to a DPS officer, I'm requesting asylum, like there is a right to request asylum. And DPS has not said if they're then referring those people to Border Patrol or if they were going to arrest them, if they're still arresting them and jailing them on state charges. Yeah. And, you know, the result of this is it just seems like is that there's just a ton of law enforcement, whether it's federal or state down there right now. I mean, talking to you, Jolie, talking to other reporters and journalists who have been down there recently, it just seems like every every mile, practically, you'll 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 encounter a a DPS trooper or someone else. I mean, was that your experience when you were down there? Yes, um, we were driving very much the speed limit the whole time. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we, the second you got into Uvalde County, which is right, uh, like not right on the border, but just ahead, but is also part of the border declaration. Every mile, like on the highways, you see you're passing a trooper like every mile. Um, they're there. They're, the hotels are all booked up in these border towns with law enforcement, primarily not just DPS, but also the other states, you know, Florida, Ohio, Nebraska. They've sent their state officers to help to help with the law enforcement activities down here too. Um, so it's it's a very it, you know police presence is everywhere. Um, they've set up at the county fairgrounds like a first responder base camp that are basically just tent barracks um, for first responders for law enforcement. Yeah, and just on the political front too. I mean, in terms of the pressures Abbott's getting from his right, one of his primary challenges, Don Huffines has said, you need to send the entire a full National Guard deployment to the border. He, he's been criticizing Abbott for I don't know how many National Guard troops are down there right now. Uh, I, I believe it's hundreds, but it's not the full. Um, it's not a full deployment, and so he's getting, as Julie just pointed out, and you already are down there. You're struck by the law enforcement presence. He's getting pressure from his right. Um, from at least this one challenger to flood the region with even more law enforcement personnel. 
Patrick, before we go, I want to ask quickly too about you know case numbers, uh, coronavirus case numbers continue to climb in the state. We're starting to see hospitals get a little bit more strained, some concerns being raised in rural areas and in some urban areas as well. Abbott seems to be taking the position, though, that this is not a situation where more restrictions, mask orders, anything like that need to be coming into place. Can you talk a little bit about the message? Yeah, I mean, he's he's unequivocally taking that position, um, you know, and he's laying down some pretty strong markers that would be uh, very hard to go back on. Um, at least in terms of the, the, how this is viewed publicly. I mean, he has, you know, he issued an executive order recently that doubled down on, you know, the fact that there are going to be no further, you know, statewide restrictions as it relates to lockdowns or mask mandates that doubled down on preventing um, school, public schools and universities from requiring vaccines, from requiring masks. Um, obviously, the school year is beginning to start, is going to start up again soon. Um, and he's made public comments, including uh, just, you know, a couple hours before we're speaking now, reiterating that, at the, you know, there is going to be, there will be no further shutdowns, no further mask mandates um, in Texas. Um, now, he has encouraged vaccinations. Um, he has spoken out in public settings like the one today. And he's tweeted a little bit um, about encouraging people to get vaccines. And so he hasn't necessarily been MIA on that front. Um, but as far as any further restrictions are concerned, uh, he's making very clear there will be nothing from state at the statewide level and that he's going to be doing all that he can uh, to keep local governments um, from issuing their own restrictions uh, as it relates to at least masks uh, and vaccines and business shutdowns. Um, and it's going to be hard to go, you know, he's, again, he's made some very unequivocal statements recently that are going to be hard to go back on. He seems more dug in than ever. Um, you know, we saw, you know, some of these things early on in the pandemic where he said, well, we're not going to do this, but then there was pressure that mounted and he, you know, eventually responded in kind to the pressure. I think the statewide mass mandate that he issued last summer is a good example of that. You know, he showed, I think some, um, flexibility to put it generously when it came to some of these things that people were calling for him to do or allow, um, and he initially wouldn't do it. Uh, but now he seems very dug in. Um, and, you know, politically he's, you know, in this position where anything he does, um, to give more power to locals, anything he does to issue uh, his new statewide restrictions, um, you know, is going to be immediately criticized by, uh, you know, his critics on his right, the, you know, every primary challenger that's announced against him, uh, how he handled the pandemic up until this point has been one of their driving issues. And so they are, you know, lying, you know, they're ready to pounce if he does anything uh, that they view as, um, you know, too, too uh, accommodating of these critics uh, on the pandemic. Critics, I guess he would say, on his left on the pandemic. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you, Patrick, Cassie, and Jolie for uh, your insight. Thank you to our sponsors, Texas Women's University, Raise Your Hand Texas, the Andy Roddick Foundation, and Independent Colleges and Universities of Texas. Thank you to our producer, Michael Ray. We'll talk to you all next week. Thank you.